0: turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 5 as we continue our series on the life of David. 2 Samuel 5, it's on page 240 in your pew Bible. And in this chapter, David finally becomes king. (laughs) How long have we waited for this to happen? It has been months. That we have seen David on the run, and yet he finally becomes king in 2 Samuel 5. And this historic occasion is momentous, not only from a historical standpoint, but also from a Christological standpoint, a Christocentric standpoint. Because all that happens to David and the things that David does ultimately foreshadows the ultimate king, Jesus Christ. And not only does the coronation of David connect to Jesus Christ, but it has incredible relevance for our lives today. And so I'm excited to dive into this chapter with you, Uh, but before we go to the Word of God, let's pray once again. Father in heaven, uh, we thank you that we can come to you at any time as your people, in the name of Jesus Christ, your Son, to receive blessings from your Holy Spirit especially as you speak to us through your word. Lord, we know that in the last several moments we've encountered some technological difficulties, but Lord, we're reminded that for centuries, even millennia, uh, people worshiped you without the aid of videos and uh, sound enhancement, Uh, simply with uh, their hearts and their voices and their ears and their hands and their feet. They worshiped you as the one true God. So Father, I pray that you would help us to fix our eyes on Jesus for these next several moments. Lord, I pray that we would be built up from your holy word this morning, and that we would not allow things around us to distract us, but we would allow your Holy Spirit to speak to us through your word. We pray this in the mighty name of Christ. Amen. The kingdom comes. That is the title for today's sermon. And I want to begin by reading verses 1 to 5 in 2 Samuel 5, where we are introduced to the covenantal king. 2 Samuel 5, verses 1 to 5. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who let out and brought in Israel Israel. And the Lord said to you, You shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord. And they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned 40 years. At Hebron he reigned over Judah seven years and six months, and at Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. The covenantal king. There's a gap of about five years between the events of 1, uh, 2 Samuel 4 and chapter 5. We know from chapter 2, verse 10, that Ishbosheth reigned over northern Israel for about two years before he was murdered in chapter 4 which we looked at last week. And probably following Ishbosheth's death, the northern tribes probably gave some tacit acknowledgement that David was their king. But they made no attempt to formally recognize him until a few more years had passed. And that's what we read here in chapter 5. What was David doing during this time? I think David was doing what he had been doing all along for many years. He was waiting patiently on the Lord, trusting that God would bring his promises to pass in his time. And David continued to show faithful responsibility uh, and care over the people that God had entrusted to him. But then the time came when all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron. And they gave David three reasons why they wanted him to be their king. Did you pick those up in the first couple of verses? Three reasons they wanted David to be their king. Number one, you're our brother. You're our own flesh and blood. Number two, you're the best qualified. Even when Saul was king, you were really the one who led in and out our forces. And number three, you're the Lord's pick. The Lord told you that you would shepherd his people and rule over Israel. And so they all come together to anoint David as their king. The word all appears three times to show that now that the kingdom was established under David, this was a united monarchy. And this monarchy came in stages. The kingdom came in stages. Uh, the first anointing of David occurred all the way back in 1 Samuel 16, far, well over a decade earlier when the Lord said to Samuel, arise and anoint him, this is the one. And then the second anointing came in 2 Samuel 2, where the tribes of Judah came to David, or the men of Judah came to David, and anointed him as king over the tribes of Judah. And now the third anointing takes place here in 2 Samuel 5, where all Israel comes together and anoints David as king over the entire nation, stating the three reasons. You're our brother, you're the best qualified, and you're the Lord's pick. And you know, these are the same good reasons why we should follow Jesus as our king. Hebrews 2.14 says, Because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, the Son of God also became flesh and blood. For only as a human being could he die. And only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death. In the same chapter of Hebrews, Jesus is referred to not only as our brother, but also as the champion of our faith, the champion of our salvation. We are told that he is not ashamed to call us his brothers. And then we are also told in this chapter that God has crowned him with glory and honor. That is to say, we should receive Jesus as our king because he is our brother. He is the best qualified, the champion of our salvation, and he is God the Father's pick. And I thought as all the tribes of Israel gather to honor David as their king, one day all the tribes of the earth will gather to honor Jesus as our universal king. Revelation 7, John the Apostle is given a vision of the future, and he records this vision for our edification, and he says, After these things I saw a vast crowd, too great to count, from every nation, every tribe, every people, every language, standing in front of the throne and before the Lamb. They were clothed in white robes and held palm branches in their hands. And they were shouting with a great war. Salvation comes from God who sits on the throne and from the Lamb. And they fell before the throne with their faces to the ground and worshipped God. My friends, do you worship Jesus as your Savior today? Do you celebrate Him? Do you say, blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord? Do you honor Christ as your King? David's kingdom advanced in stages until he ruled over all Israel. And the same is true of Jesus' kingdom. He has already been anointed by the Father from eternity past, and it was made public at his baptism. But even then, people did not receive Jesus as their king. But as the gospel was proclaimed, there was a remnant that believed. That remnant is the true Israel. It is the church of Jesus Christ. We are an outpost of God's kingdom in this world. That would be what we could call the second anointing as people receive Jesus as their king in today's age. But the time is coming when that third phase will take place when all the earth will recognize Christ as King, when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It comes in stages. And there are some, I think our ladies were talking about this in their class today, some mock, say all things continue just as they have always been. All this stuff about Jesus isn't for real. He's not going to come. But Peter reminds us the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some people count slowness. So why does God wait? Because he is patient toward you. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all come to repentance. And when Christ returns, it will be too late for those who have rejected him. That's why the Bible says, now is the day of salvation. Now is the time to accept Christ as your Savior. God is patient toward you. He is waiting for you to come to repentance so that you will not be judged on that day. David reigned for 40 years, the text says. It's estimated from 1010 B.C. to 970 B.C. And many critical scholars, critics of Scripture will say that the record of David's reign in Scripture is more or less a fabrication, sort of like uh, King Arthur, the legend of King Arthur in England. But in 1993, just not that many decades ago, a huge archaeological discovery was made at Tel Dan, an excavation site in northern Israel. Archaeologists found a stone slab, what's called a stella, with an inscription on it that says the house of David. And that is dated at the 9th century BC. Now we don't need that evidence to believe what the scriptures tell us. But it goes to show that even those who mock God's word, God has a way of just letting certain archaeological findings prove the Bible's critics wrong. Provides evidence even beyond Scripture that David was an actual historical figure rather than just some folk hero or legend. David really existed in time and space, and he reigned 40 years in Israel. Friends, King Jesus really exists. And he will reign not 40 years, but he will reign forever and ever. The evidence is there, the evidence is in Scripture, the evidence is all around us. The question is will you believe it? Do you believe it? The Bible is trustworthy because God is trustworthy. Jesus is the ultimate covenantal king. For as Paul reminds us in 2 Corinthians 1.20, all the promises of God are fulfilled in Jesus Christ with the resounding yes. And that is why we utter our amen, our yes, to the glory of God. Throughout the remainder of 2 Samuel 5, we see that David is not only a covenantal king, that foreshadows the ultimate king, Jesus Christ, but he is also the conquering king. And this really dominates the bulk of the chapter, verses 6 to 25. In verses 6 to 10, David conquers the Jebusites and then makes Jerusalem the capital of Israel. In verses 17 to 25, David defeats the Philistines twice when they attack him. So let's look first at the conquering of the Jebusites, verses 6 to 10. 2 Samuel 5, 6 to 10. And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who said to David, you will not come in here, but the blind and lame will ward you off, thinking David cannot come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David, And David said on that day, whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him get up the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind who are hated by David's soul. Therefore it is said, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. And David lived in the stronghold and called it the city of David. And David built the city all around from the millow inward. And David became greater and greater for the Lord, the God of hosts was with him. See what's happening? Jerusalem was so well fortified that the inhabitants of the city, the Jebusites, said, even our blind and lame people could keep you out. You'll never get in here. And this kind of taunting and and trash talk was very customary in the ancient Near East before a battle was to begin. We get a little dose of it in the world of sports, don't we? They'll show little video clips of this guy saying one thing, this guy saying another, as they get ready maybe for some big ball game coming up. But it was very serious when it came to battle. And, and they would taunt one another. They would insult one another. They would try to provoke one another with the idea of intimidating them or kind of psyching out your enemy. One of my favorite examples of this is in First Kings chapter 20 which takes place about a century later during the days of the divided kingdom when King Ahab reigned over the northern kingdom of Israel from the capital at the time, Samaria. And and King Ben-Hadad of Aram comes and attacks Ahab and Samaria. And Ben-Hadad says that by the time the battle is over, there won't be anything left of Samaria but a handful of dust. And Ahab responds by saying, He who puts on his armor should not boast as one who takes it off. Pretty good, isn't it? In other words, don't count your chickens before they hatch. It is easier to start a battle than it is to end it. Now, Ahab was an evil king. And on many accounts, he was cowardly in his response to various situations. But in this instance, He gave a witty comeback, and by the way, he ended up winning the battle. God was gracious. And David won the battle on this occasion. Instead of being intimidated by these remarks, he actually became infuriated by them. He marshaled his men and, and had them attack the city by going through an underground water tunnel that went from the outside spring down under the walls and into the city of jerusalem it was a vertical water shaft and again it's interesting in 1867 an archaeologist named charles warren discovered such a shaft near the gian spring outside the walls of jerusalem which would have been the main water supply for the city now we don't know if it was that particular shaft but it shows that there was and it, this actually happened even in 2005 where, where even more excavations took place and an elaborate tunnel system was found under the walls of Jerusalem leading to this outside water source. And again, here is, again, extra-biblical evidence that supports the account of Scripture, just as the narrator said. According to 1 Chronicles eleven six. David's nephew Joab led the attack, and therefore David made him the commander of his army. Jerusalem became known as the city of David. (laughs) Don't you love it? They said, you will never get in here. The blind and lame can keep you out. That's what they said about Jerusalem, which is actually called the city of David now. David made it the capital city of Israel. Instead of Hebron. And that was a wise move on David's part because Hebron was located about 30 miles further south. And Jerusalem was more centrally located. It was a way of communicating to the northern tribes that I am your king too. That I will be king over all Israel. I will care for you as much as I care for the tribes of Benjamin and Judah. 2,000 years later, when Jesus was born, Jerusalem was still referred to as the city of David. It is still called that today in many circles. Do you remember what the angel of the Lord said to the shepherds there on the Judean hillside? He said, I bring you good tidings of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Jerusalem was also known as Mount Zion, and it is mentioned in Scripture more than any other city in the Bible, from the book of Genesis all the way through Revelation. In Revelation 21, when the Apostle John has a vision of the new heaven and the new earth, he says, listen, I saw the holy city There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Brothers and sisters, God is bringing the promised kingdom to its appointed consummation. And the new Jerusalem will do what the old Jerusalem never could, wipe away every tear from our eyes, be rid of sin and sorrow and suffering. The old Jerusalem was never like that, even in its most glorious dynasty. The Bible says that the new Jerusalem already exists in heaven, but it has yet to be established on earth. And that is why Christians all over the world pray, your kingdom come. And yet, the writer of Hebrews reminds us that even as we worship God today, This very day, April 2nd, 2023, as we are gathered together as God's people to worship him, the writer of Hebrews says, we have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. He goes on to say that through Jesus, we have access into God's presence right now where thousands upon thousands of angels are already gathered in joyful assembly, along with the uh, Christians who have already gone on before us, what Scripture describes as the souls of the righteous made perfect. How wonderful worship is. It's far greater than we can perceive with our senses, even in this very moment. It is a foretaste of our coming glory, getting back to second Samuel five, we read in verse eleven, and Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David and cedar trees, also carpenters and masons who built David a house. Hiram was a lot smarter than the Jebusites. <laughs> He was a lot smarter than the Philistines because he made an alliance with David. He saw that this man was on the move, that he was the Lord's pick, and he formed a friendship with David. Now initially there might have been some self-interest because Hiram was king of Tyre. And Tyre was a major seaport city on the Mediterranean Sea. It was a trading empire. And because David's kingdom now controlled the inland, He wanted to be sure that he could still make use or have access to those inland trade routes. And so there might have been a little self-interest initially, but scripture shows us that Hiram formed a genuine friendship with David. They enjoyed a cordial relationship throughout his reign. And either Hiram, we could call him Hiram I, uh, continued that friendship with Solomon, when he provided resources to build the temple, or it may be that the Hiram of Solomon's day might have been the son of this Hiram, what we might call Hiram Jr. We don't know, it's not clear in Scripture, but this was a long standing friendship between the house of David and the king of Tyre. Verse 12 And David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. That is to say that David's rise to power and all of David's accomplishments was intended by God not to glorify David, but to benefit God's people. And David knew this was the case. And as long as David remembered that, he would continue to be a great leader brothers and sisters in christ the same principle holds true for christian leaders today this morning i was praying for shiite muslims as you know it's it's the month of ramadan and, and prayer cast has a, a daily video of prayer and and today we're for shiite muslims who who live mostly in uh, India, Pakistan. Um, Iran, Iraq, and uh, they hold their imams, their teachers, to be perfect messengers from God, infallible. Well, we as Christians would recognize that God's word is infallible, but God's messengers can be very fallible because we are not perfect. There is only one perfect king. And so David kept this in mind, and that's what made him a great leader. And as we keep this in mind, God will use us in great ways. God deliver us from the huge mistake that so many people make of getting too big for our britches. Remember this, nobody in the church, nobody in the office of pastor, elder, deacon, deaconess, other ministry leader is indispensable. Now every member of the body of Christ is valuable, indispensable. In that sense, they play a critical role. But as soon as we think that we are indispensable, uh, we have uh, we have said we would never say this with our mouth, but we say in our spirit. You know, uh, he must decrease and I must increase. Then we're in big trouble. And as churches begin to think that way, we're in big trouble if we remember that God has blessed us so that we can benefit others to his glory, we are what the old hymn says, channels only. Channels only, blessed master. But with all thy wondrous power flowing through us, thou canst use us every day and every hour. That is the proper perspective for us to have as believers. And that was David's perspective. And it's noted here in verse 12. Well, let's look at the defeat of the Philistines twice. First of all, in verses 17 to 21. one. Second Samuel 5, verses 17 to 21. When the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David, but David heard of it and went down to the stronghold. Now the Philistines had come and spread out in the valley of Rephaim, And David inquired of the Lord, shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, go up, for I will certainly give the Philistines into your hand. And David came to Baal-perazim, and David defeated them there. And he said, the Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breaking flood. Therefore, the name of that place is called Baal-perazim. And the Philistines left their idols there, and David and his men carried them away. The parallel account in First Chronicles 14 says that David's men not only confiscated the idols, but David had his men burn the idols. And that's significant because most of the nations, when they would take away another nation's idols, they would put them in their temple, in their pantheon of God's, more or less adding to their collection. But David understood that there's only one Lord. There's only one God. He understood that the Lord, he is God. And therefore, he trashed all these other idols in the fire. That's where he had his men throw them because that's exactly where they belonged. Continuing on in verse 22, And the Philistines came up yet again and spread out in the valley of Rephiim. And when David inquired of the Lord... He said, that is, the Lord said, you shall not go up, go around to their rear and come up against them opposite the balsam or the poplar trees. And when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, then rouse yourself, for then the Lord has gone out before you to strike down the army of the Philistines. And David did as the Lord commanded him and struck down the Philistines from Geba to Gezer. I was going to say that they found an old man there and said he was an old geezer, but I'm not going to do that. In these verses, David's two victories are described briefly, but we're given just enough detail to see that David inquired of the Lord before each battle, and God gave him the victory. In the first battle, David attacked the Philistines head on. And after the victory, David said, Man, the Lord burst through my enemies like a raging flood. And he named the place accordingly. In the second battle, David inquired of the Lord again. But this time, God gave David a different strategy. He said, You'll not go up against them directly, that is, but you're going to circle behind them to their rear and attack them that way as soon as you hear them marching in the trees. Now we only know what Scripture says: Was it a rustling that sounds like a, a marching army? Was it the sound of actual uh, marching that came from the top of the trees? Uh, was this something that just David heard, or did the Philistines also hear it? Was God creating the impression on the Philistines that the force coming against them was was far greater than it actually was in terms of their number and their force. We don't know. But whatever the case is, when David took that cue from God, he heard the sound of marching in the trees. He knew at that point that God had already gone out before him, and David went out in faith and claimed the victory. Why did God give David the victory? because David inquired of the Lord, and David did as God commanded him. You see it right there in the text. David inquired of the Lord, and then David did as God commanded him. Now, it's easy for us to jump right to us and say, well, that's what we need to do. And we do need to do that. We need to inquire of the Lord. We need to be in God's word. We need to go to God in prayer and say, God, what would you have me to do in this situation? if we're going to win the victory, and that's true. But I don't want to circumvent, go around the marvel of how Jesus Christ did this. This is true in the ultimate sense regarding David's greater descendant, the Lord Jesus, who was obedient to death, even death on a cross. How many times throughout Jesus' ministry do we see him prioritizing prayer? So busy during the day, but while everybody else was sleeping, Jesus arose, it says, while it was still dark, a a great while before daybreak, in order to consult with and commune with his heavenly Father. Not only in the major episodes of his life, but the Bible says that Jesus would go to the Garden of Gethsemane and other places where he was accustomed to praying. It was a way of life with Jesus. Jesus prayed in joyful circumstances and in sorrowful circumstances, in all sorts of settings and situations, both publicly and privately. Jesus set an example of how we should trust God and submit to God and seek fellowship with God. And we're told in the book of Hebrews that Jesus was heard because of his deep reverence for God. That is to say, Jesus' prayers were not perfunctory. They weren't simply a matter of routine. They were not done merely out of duty like this is something I ought to do. Jesus delighted in fellowship with Heavenly Father. Jesus believed that prayer really mattered. And Jesus was empowered by the Holy Spirit as He prayed and God gave Him the victory. By seeking God in prayer, And by submitting to the Father's will, Jesus became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey Him. And that's why we say, as Pastor Mike prayed earlier, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. This next week we'll be celebrating that victory in Christ and the price that He paid to secure that victory for us as we commemorate his death on Good Friday and his glorious resurrection next Sunday. For now, let me leave you with four points of application in closing. These are just four takeaways the Lord seemed to put on my heart as I studied this text. Number one, unity comes by following one king. Unity comes by following one king. The nation of Israel was divided until they submitted themselves under one king, David. And the same is true of the church today. In Ephesians 4, the apostle Paul reminds us there is one body in one spirit just as you have been called the one glorious hope for the future. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and in all and living through all. So here's the good news. As we follow the Lord individually, we will be unified with one another as the body of Christ. Unity comes by following one king. Number two Different situations require different strategies and constant dependence on the Lord. We just saw this in David's warfare with the Philistines. Rather than assume the same strategy, he sought God's will in each situation. God's word is infallible. Our way of doing things is not. Flexibility gives us freedom to adapt to different situations and opportunities that we encounter individually and as a church and be able to respond to them in a timely way so that we can keep moving forward in the direction that God has for us. But how we apply Scripture to a given situation requires prayer. We need to seek the Lord's wisdom. Lord, how do we best apply your truth in this given circumstance, in this given situation? The programs of the church... Even the personnel of the church, the structure of the church, the policies of the church, these things are not infallible. God's word is infallible. Amen. And if you want to be free in the Lord, then be flexible in your spirit. Yeah. read a quote a couple days ago where someone said, and Blessed are the flexible, for they shall not be bent out of shape. Yeah. <laughs> now I can't prove that's the ninth beatitude. It's not recorded in the scripture. But it might be a nice kind of appendix, maybe, for us to keep in mind. Number three, Christ alone is the perfect king. Christ alone is the perfect king. David was a faithful king. He was considered the gold standard of kings in Israel. David was faithful over the course of his life, but David was not flawless. The narrator reminds us, even here in 2 Samuel 5, verse 13, that when David became king in Jerusalem, he took more concubines and wives. Now, polygamy was never part of God's plan. And David's actions actually went directly against God's command to kings in Deuteronomy 17, where he said, the king shall not acquire many wives for himself. And yet, that's exactly what David did, even amidst all these great things that were taking place. And boy, would David pay the price later, as you just see his household ripped to shreds. Now, to my knowledge, no man here or no woman is married to multiple spouses. But it's a warning to us not to deviate from God's plan for marriage. One man, one woman, one flesh, one lifelong covenant before God. David married multiple wives, and yet his greater descendant, the Lord Jesus Christ, our perfect king, has only one bride, his church. And he is our heavenly bridegroom. Our marriages are to reflect this commitment. And so should our admiration of other Christian leaders. The best of men are men at best. So let us fix our eyes on Jesus, our true champion, our perfect king. And then fourthly, finally, remember that the kingdom comes in stages. David had to remember this, and it required patience on his part, And brothers and sisters, it requires patience on our part. You can be sure that God will make good on all His promises. We can pray in confidence, Your kingdom come, because His kingdom surely shall come. And in the meantime, God calls us to be persistent, patient, and prayerful always working enthusiastically for the Lord, knowing that our labor in the Lord is not in vain. Let us pray. Lord, I think of that hymn, Jesus, fill now with thy spirit, hearts that full surrender know, that the streams of living water from our inward man may flow. Lord Jesus, the words that you speak to us are spirit and life. Help us not to refuse the one who is speaking, but convict us of our sin. Convince us of the truth of your word and cause us to submit to you in all things, knowing that you are our good and righteous and perfect king. Lord Jesus, you wept as you approached Jerusalem on the triumphal entry saying that the people did not recognize the time of their visitation, the time that the one true God showed up. Lord, I pray that we would not make that same mistake. I pray, Father God, that your Holy Spirit would open our eyes, that we would behold these wonderful things from your word, and that we would behold your glory in the face of Jesus Christ, your Son, our great King. And it's in His name we pray. Amen.